This special history edition of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the William M. Wood Foundation. Welcome to the Naval History Edition of the U.S. Naval Institute podcast. I'm Brian O'Rourke, one of the editors of Naval History and Proceedings magazines. With me this afternoon is Richard Latour, the editor-in-chief of Naval History magazine. Richard, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing fine, Brian. It's a pretty interesting time here at the Naval Institute as we deal, like everybody else, with the fallout of the coronavirus Uh, We're continuing to get the content out to people, continuing to produce both magazines, uh, and we have a new digital-only version of the Naval History Magazine subscription that's that's just recently become available. For those of you interested in following that, uh, you have a new option for accessing not only the current issues, but uh, all the content that we have accumulated in our archives over the years, so uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, Richard, what do we have on deck in naval history coming up? Well, we're fast approaching our deadline for the June issue, and we have a package of articles about Tom Hanks' new World War II movie, movie, and that's titled Greyhound. If you haven't seen the trailer for that, man, it looks good. I shared it on Facebook a week or so ago, and it was my most popular post of the year, according to (laughs) Facebook. (laughs) It's fantastic, and... Uh, Greyhound is the uh, talk between ships radio call sign for the USS Keeling, a fictional U.S. destroyer in the Battle of the Atlantic. Tom Hanks plays the destroyer's commander and the commander of the escort for a convoy going across the Atlantic. And um, it's really a, a from from the trailer, it looks like a, it'll be a fine movie. And it's based on a C.S. Forrester novel, The Good Shepherd. And in the issue, we have a a great overview article by Craig Simons, who uh, was a historical consultant for the film. Also, we have an interview with the director of the movie, uh, Aaron Schneider. Uh, He goes into great detail about how they were able to film those fantastic shots of the destroyer in the uh, rough North Atlantic. It certainly looks to be a great package coming up in that issue, so I hope everybody will get a chance to check that out. Uh, joining us today on the podcast is uh, an author of two recent articles in Naval History Magazine about Samuel Elliott Morrison's epic multi-volume history of naval operations in World War II. Richard, you want to tell us a little about what David has been doing for us? Yes. David Sears is a frequent contributor to naval history, and he has turned out some some great articles for us. In fact, he was our 2017 Naval History Author of the Year for two of his articles, Flying the Empire Express and Pipeline to Freedom. And we'll talk about those articles a little later on, but they were in the February 2017 issue. But these two articles that David wrote for us uh, are just outstanding on Samuel Elliott Morrison, uh, one of the outstanding leading naval historians of the 20th century, certainly. And um, uh, he goes into great detail about how Morrison researched the, his 14-volume history of U.S. Naval, United States naval operations in World War II and also how he wrote those books. 
So, uh, David, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome, David. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we can do this remotely. <laughs> can you give us a little background on how you had the idea to to write this uh, two piece package on uh, Samuel Elliott Morrison? Yeah, I, I was actually reflecting on that uh, this morning. I've, I've, you know, I have a so, something of a naval background. I was in the Navy and on a destroyer for a couple of years back in the Vietnam era, so I know something, you know, a little bit about the Navy of those times. And I've been um, writing professionally, I guess, for about a dozen years. And rather interestingly, when I set out to do that, to, to write about history and figure that World War II naval history might be a, a niche uh, for me, uh, the first book, and I actually remember the day I was sitting in the, a branch of the New York Public Library and, and got the collection of the um, the, Morris, the Morrison history and it was just browsing through it, and one of the first things I noticed, uh, and this again is a dozen years ago, was, uh, you know, this was something that was written back in the, that was reported back in the 40s and written back in the 50s, and it read so um, smoothly and engagingly that I thought, well, if I'm going to write history, I'm not sure if it'll quite be this, but I'd like to be able to kind of meet this standard. So I've, I've been interested in, in this collection uh, ever since. Um, I'm sure that I've uh, read all the, all the volumes. I haven't read them consecutively. I've, you know, when I've had to write about some aspect of naval history during World War II, I kind of dive into the book that's most appropriate and uh, go, go from there. So it's kind of been a companion for my writing uh, over the years. And one thing I noticed, uh, there have been, you know, occasional articles I've seen. I know I've seen a, an article in um, Smithsonian um, about uh, the Morrison genre, but never something that kind of broke it down between how he actually did the research and then proceeded to the writing. So I, I thought this might be a good juncture to do such a thing for naval history. So if you hadn't come across that, where did you find the information about it? What what were your primary sources in doing this? Well, um, you, you have you have the books themselves, and um, I've gone into the um, you know the 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 archives at the um, uh, Naval History and Heritage Command. Um, there's quite a collection of the uh, Morrison materials there, so. Um, with the limited time I had, and you know, he can't go through all the files, but I sort of picked um, uh, several of the folders that I thought would be give me some information about uh, you know his travels during that time, and I used that for the first part of the article, which kind of tells you his itinerary as he traveled around during World War II, and uh, who was supporting him. So I guess the, the short answer is the Naval History and Heritage Command was very valuable there. Mm -hmm. uh, the second part was about the the writing of the books. And, and as I think I said in the article, in the article itself, you know, he, he initially was like, like all um, blue sky authors, uh, figuring that he could do it within a four year uh, time span. It ended up taking him uh, 16 years. And so you can figure that this was a two decades long uh, project. And for that, I, I know I, I have a, 
uh, a subscription to something called newspaper to, newspapers.com and you can you can pick up things like uh, book reviews and articles about Morrison and you kind of trace where he was through this period of uh, of writing uh the books and it's kind of interesting you know he was reporting on World War 2 but he was really writing the volumes um uh, in the post-war area, uh, post-war era, and in particularly the Cold War era. So, you know, history always has a context, both when you're researching it and when you're writing it. And I, I find that kind of interesting, too. So I was able to, you know, in the second piece, kind of trace, you know, the, his itinerary of writing and, and how the reading and, and critical audience was responding to uh, what he was putting out. It's kind of interesting. David, how did Morrison come to embark on this endeavor? Yeah, that's kind of that is a very interesting story. I mean, he has he has a background. He's he's a Harvard professor. Uh, you describe him as a uh, Boston Brahmin. I guess you know the middle to upper class Brahmin, Back Bay Bostonian. He, he did have a relationship with uh, with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Interestingly, you know, when you read about his days at Harvard, he was uh, one of the last Harvard professors to to uh, commute to uh, from his home in the Back Bay, Boston, out to Cambridge on horseback. Uh, he would famously tie up his horse to a hitching post when he was, I think, even well into the 1920s uh, when he was a, a professor there. Uh, but he, you know, he came from an elite background, had had connections. And just before the war, well, several years before the war, he had mounted an expedition to uh, replicate uh, the voyages of uh, Christopher Columbus. And uh, I believe it was a couple of volumes. And the difference was that he actually mounted an expedition. He, he got hold of a, you know, a representative uh, sailing ship, assembled a team of of journalists and scientists and geographers and so forth, and actually set out from, uh, I believe, from Portugal or maybe from Spain uh, to replicate um, the voyages, and particularly when they got to the uh, to the Caribbean, to actually tour the islands that um, that that Columbus sailed near, trying to figure out. Um, what the itinerary was and what he actually saw. So he, uh, even before the war, Morrison had a reputation of being a, a hands-on explorer. Um, and when he presented his case, I guess initially to to the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Knox, who uh, rejected it out of hand, but uh, Morrison had a workaround by going to FDR, and, and very quickly he got the assignment to be... Uh, I don't want to say the official historian, but the way was certainly cleared for him to have full access to all the records necessary, and he received a commission as a lieutenant commander. So he was he was well positioned to do it, but he'd done some spade work in the uh, Columbus expeditions that made him uh, a credible candidate to do it. What was the time frame for that Columbus expedition? I'm going to say the mid-30s. I want to say... They, they probably started at 1937, 1938. Now, the, the expedition itself was actually during the war, and I know that some of their itinerary got uh, curtailed because of the threat of uh, German U-boats. They weren't able to visit all the places they 
wanted to visit or travel all the routes that they wanted to travel because of the German submarine threat. And you note in your article that that he won a Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Christopher Columbus. So yes, he did. And you know, it's it's interesting that you know this is an historian who, for most people, I think has kind of faded into the past. But if you look at the first half of the the 20th century, um, he was a premier historian on the uh, both the academic and popular reading fronts. One of the th- sort of themes in your your first article are his many Harvard connections. Uh, you mentioned uh, FDR, another Harvard grad, but also some of the individuals that came to help him on his research project and writing project were Harvard alums or his former students at Harvard? Yeah, many of them had either been in uh, classes or were doctoral candidates uh, whose uh, theses he had, he had, had supervised. So he had a, he had a ready-made um, coterie of people he could call on. Um, and of course, at that time, um, college graduates, many of them were in the uh, U.S. Navy. So he had a he had a kind of a dual pipeline into the into the Navy, but also into uh, his former students who happened to be in the Navy. Did anything uh, surprise you as you did this research? Did you did you come across a story that was out of character for him, or or just thoroughly unexpected as you went through it? Yeah, I I, I can probably think of a number of things, but the ones that kind of jumped to mind, you know, he was kind of. You know, he was very parochial in his uh, in sources. I know that there were some some contentious issues between between his staff and the army historical staff, um, largely over his treatment of army figures like uh, Douglas MacArthur. I think the, the U.S. Army historians took real affront at that. I think also I, I'm not entirely comfortable with how much or how little credit he gave to um, the people who were supporting him. I mean, actually doing a, a lot of the research and a lot of the initial writing. I think he sort of treated the enterprise as if he was back at Harvard. He was the, he was the professor. They were the students. And whoever would get credit out of it, um, it would be the professor, not the uh, the students. So that model sort of applied. And I don't think it applied elsewhere. I don't think it applied in army historical circles. I know it didn't apply in, in you know, British Navy historical cir- circles either. I think he was kind of peculiar in doing that, and I'm not sure that was his entirely his best moment. Certainly the result that he produced, um, you know, he was the final editor, and I, if you can look at his text, you can say, well, he's the one that, that set that tone. He, he's the one that got the, that shaped the narrative this way, and certainly that's to his uh, credit. Um, but I, I think he kind of suppressed the, the work of some of the people who worked under him. That mm-hmm. was surprising and kind of disappointing. You mentioned the Army historians. Well, w- one of the ones you discuss in your second article who uh, I guess Morrison ran afoul of was Gordon Prang, who, yeah. of course, was a giant in the world of Pacific yeah. War historians. Can you expl- yeah, can I, you describe what happened there? Well, I know that uh, you know. Uh, I'm not sure what stage of the war, but um, that that um, 
Morrison had made his way to the Southwest Pacific, and he had spent a good deal of time uh, with uh, Douglas MacArthur, and I, I don't think his um, his reaction to MacArthur uh, was particularly uh, favorable. He thought that, you know, I think that MacArthur uh, thought that the only way uh, for him to to, for for us to win the war was for him to be in charge, and that seemed kind of self-aggrandizing to uh, to Morrison. I think he put it in so many words, and I think that kind of cooled the relationship with uh, Army historical staff. I don't think he was I don't think he was off in his assessment, but I think you know having it publicly expressed that way um, uh, certainly soured the relationship. There are truths that cannot be spoken. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, not not too loudly and not too widely. <laughs> and yeah, you know, understand also. I think you know. Here's here's where you have some context. I, I believe the volume that 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 mentions MacArthur was probably produced, you know, during all that controversy between MacArthur and and Truman. So there was a context there. You don't just have the context of World War II. You have the context of the era in which the uh, volumes are being uh, produced. You just can't avoid that. Yeah. Also, Prang was a historian on MacArthur's staff in Japan after the war. Right. And I think that there was, you know, that limited or threatened to limit some of the access that Morrison and his staff uh, would have. uh, I mean, uh, MacArthur was the man on the ground in charge in Japan, so he could orchestrate who had access and who didn't have access, I assume. I was uh, very interested to read that Morrison was not sort of restricted to an office or a headquarters during the war, but he was out on warships and actually uh, witnessed combat firsthand. Yeah, I I think he was, in total, I think he was on more than a a dozen uh, warships and you know, he one thing he would do early on in in his research, he would make connections with a given uh, commander of a ship, and uh, that, of course, that person would move around as well. You know, either in within the Atlantic Theater or in the Pacific Theater, and um, Morrison would find his way uh, back to them. So he he uh, he he cultivated his contacts early on in the process, and I think it paid great. Uh, dividends as he went about uh, his research. He would get, you know, he would get tipped off. He wouldn't be told specifically about operations, but a contact he had made would tell him, well, you ought to call so-and-so and say that, you know, if something comes up, uh, I'd like to be included somehow. So he got a, he got kind of an informal heads up on operations that were pending so he could be, uh, present himself in the right place at the right time. So he, you know, he he did that, and uh, he actually, on a couple of occasions, I believe once off Okinawa, came pretty close to, um, uh, you know, being involved in a kamikaze attack, for example. And um, the, the people around him, uh, you know, sailors and so forth, I think remarked at the time that, uh, who, you know, who was this guy? He's just, you know, this is all this action's going on, and he's kind of sitting in the background calmly observing and, and, and taking notes about this while the rest, rest of us are, are rushing around like crazy to avoid being killed. So he, I think he displayed some, some, calm, uh, some coolness under fire, and I think that really uh, impressed the, uh, 
the personnel that he encountered on his ships. And, you know, he had he really did have uh, carte blanche about uh, where and when he wanted to go. And if you look through the um, the records at the Naval Navy Heritage History and Heritage Command, you can you know you can see the uh, the uh, travel orders. Uh, you can see his um, his uh, expense receipts and kind of trace you know trace where he's going from uh, one place to the next. It's quite a quite an interesting uh, paper trail, and uh, he really kind of you know he. I'm not sure he anticipated when he went into this how, you know, how thinly uh, he would be stretched. I mean, many of the volumes um, are set in the Pacific, and that's that's a natural because that's that was the the Navy's main theater of operations. But when um, when Morrison started out, it really the the topic of most concern was the uh, the Battle of the Atlantic, and he was spending a lot of his time uh, in ships on the on the Atlantic seaboard. Uh, he went on a on a ship. You mentioned that uh, Tom Hanks that movie that's coming up. He went on a ship, one of the first ships that was escorting a uh, escorting a uh, uh, troop troop convoy to uh, Great Britain. So he had early experience with. With how convoys works, and then um, all of a sudden the main action shifts to the Pacific, and he has to go there and spend a lot of time there and have other people update him on um, what's going on in the uh, you know in the European theater. I know that uh, he was in touch, and I forget the officer's name, but a young officer who was responsible. Oh yes, here it is, Gerald M. Elsie. One of his former students was actually the officer who um, uh, put together uh, FDR's uh, map room, and he was able to have uh, Elsie detailed to cover the the landings in uh, in France in 1944. So Elsie became his his source of inf- one of his sources of information. What was of what was going on in the uh, in northern Europe, and there were others that were doing similar things for him in in uh, in Sicily and 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 the Italian mainland. So it was it, it, it's quite an inter, quite an enterprise. I think he started out thinking, well, this is something I can do by myself, and very quickly uh, it turned out he couldn't, and he had to scramble uh, to assemble this uh, this coterie of, of young assistants. To help him out, uh, David. One of the paradoxes of history is being a witness to it doesn't necessarily make you the best writer of it. Um, and some of the criticism that's been directed at Morrison's book over the books over the years has been that he didn't get everything right, despite the fact that he was on scene and had a pretty significant mm-hmm. access to people, places, and events. What are some of the things he got wrong? You think that? Uh, perhaps a really needed correction or you were surprised he got wrong or you didn't you didn't anticipate would be difficult for someone who was there at the time well let me let me take that from the perspective of the things he got right um if you look and and the reason that you know these books remain active and remain in print they've never gone out of print is that 
if you look in the appendices, for example, you see um, listings of all the ships, the ship's captains, the, the task force organizations uh, that were in place at the time. And those are, um, you know, they're not 100% accurate, but there is certainly a good uh, starting point for understanding the forces that were actually um, being assembled. And I think they're probably the best record that was ever put together of that. Um, and, you know, he said himself, you know, uh, you know, history is a, is a moving, is a moving target. And, um, you know, there'll be, there'll be other books as there have been who will uh, dispute the facts and dispute uh, the context of what I'm saying. But what they won't be able to do is, is, is capture the feeling of having been there, you know, kind of the emotional um, impact of, of being a witness to these things and talking to people who, who had witnessed these things. So this, this kind of, you know, he, what he produced was the context of the war, what it felt like, what we were thinking at the time, uh, what were the emotions, not only, not, not his, that necessarily his emotions, or certainly they were there, but the emotions of uh, other people as well. Now, now that said, there are, you know, there are blind spots. And one of the biggest blind spots is this whole thing about um, uh, uh, intelligence and encryption, encryption and decryption. A lot of this stuff, you know, what I'm talking about is the decrypting of the Japanese and also of the Germans, particularly the uh, German Navy, um, that we had broken their codes. And he had no access to that information. So that's a huge gap when you're covering something like, um, you know, the the Battle of the Atlantic, which uh, stretched out over literally over six years. The, one of the biggest factors was the decryption of, of, of German codes and how that impact the rerouting of convoys, how that affected the um, mobilization of uh, anti-submarine defenses. The same thing applies to um, to uh, Midway and the breaking of the Japanese code that enabled us to be ready and prepared for Midway. You know, that was kind of a, that's a big blind spot for him. It's a big blind spot for everybody up through basically the, the 1990s, I believe. So those things are going to be there. Um, the other sources of criticism are that, you know, he played, he played some favorites. And uh, if somebody was, uh, you know, kind enough to invite him on their ship and uh, provide open access, I think it would f- far be it from him to put that captain or that uh, Colonel in a in a bad light, and uh, you know he he could play honest with some of the highest authorities, people like um, MacArthur and Halsey, but I think he let some um, other people off the hook because they'd been uh, kind and generous in extending uh, courtesies to him. So that you know, there's going to be a lot of that over 14 volumes. But if you want to, if you want to. Um, Start somewhere in learning about naval history in World War II. There's uh, there's still no better source than than uh, than these volumes, and you'll still be amazed at how thorough they are, but how accessible they are. Right, and I just just want to put a plug in here. Uh, the latest uh, reprints were done by the Naval Institute Press, so you can go to <laughs> www.usni.org. 
uh, and look those up. One of the things I found most interesting, and we've kind of touched on this, is how he he ran a file of other historians, but he also ran a file of s- several of his subjects. And I'm thinking of Bull Halsey in particular. Right. And the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And we've run a bit about this episode in Naval History over the years. And mm-hmm. it seemed like Halsey Halsey was well aware of, of Morrison's book and the books and the process the the progress he was making and approaching the volume on Leyte Gulf, and I believe Halsey was getting more and more nervous about how right. how he would tackle uh, right. uh, the admiral's role in that battle. Can you t- right. talk about that a bit? You know, that's you know the the Battle of uh, Leyte Gulf when it comes to uh, to uh, history. I guess history in general, certainly military history, can be kind of a it can be kind of a black hole. You you know you enter. Historically, you enter it at your own risk because there were so many uh, complicating factors, uh, so many um, tactical and planning um, failures, so many things that went wrong in a battle that ultimately went right. And sorting these things out is still remains a, a, a difficult thing to do even you know 70 plus years later and um you know morrison's kind of point on this was you know there were there were a lot of mistakes made but um to him it seemed that you know uh halsey's failure to, to cover that straight was kind of the um was the initiating error and uh kind of Kind of drew all the others' errors into it like a magnet. So he 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 didn't think he could get away without, in some way, uh, faulting uh, uh, Halsey over that. So I guess Halsey knew it was coming, and and when it came, uh, and I, I noticed I'm uh, looking at the article now. There's a, a, a picture of Halsey is is in a he's in a suit and wearing a fedora. He's kind of at the the last stages of his, you know, he's far along into his career and life beyond his career and into his, his closing years. And, but he still got the spirit of the bull with him. So he took a uh, great, great exception to that. And I know that uh, from talking, I, I spoke with, you know, I, in, in researching this, I, I kind of stumbled across an individual named Phil Lundeberg, who was one of uh, Halsey's um, post-war uh, assistance and was uh, Phil Lundeberg was largely responsible for um, the research and the initial writing of Volume Ten, which is about uh, victory in the North Atlantic. And Phil was a very interesting individual. I I, I came across his name, kind of thinking, well, there's not going to be any, anybody around who remembers uh, this process who was with Hall with excuse me, with Morrison at the time, and I came across Phil Lunderberg, and I, I started, you know, I looked <laughs> on the internet to see if I could find him, and I found a phone number, and I, that happens often, but usually the phone numbers are no longer valid. Um, but I called him, and by gosh, his wife answered the phone, and she said, Phil, it's for you. So I ended up talking with uh, Phil, Phil Lunderberg, who has since, uh, since, Ceased, unfortunately, but he was. I talked with him at the ripe old age of uh, 95 in his home in 
in Virginia, and uh, he was a young naval officer. In fact, he was on a, I believe, a destroyer escort that was one of the last warships sunk by a German submarine. So he was a he was survive he was a survivor of in the last days of the Battle of the Atlantic. But fast forwarding to this uh, this uh, situation with Halsey, um, Morrison would uh, each time a volume came out, and I'm not sure how how consistently this was done, but he would make a um, uh, a presentation, kind of a historical presentation, to preview his uh, his volume, or you know, ask invite discussion on his volume. And when he did this on on, uh, and I forget which number volume it is, but anyways, um, when Halsey got wind of this, he demanded equal time, <laughs> and so he got equal time. And I, as I said in the article, what he actually said is kind of lost to history. But I know that uh, Phil Lundeberg and another one of Morrison's associates were kind of the uh, uh, the ushers. Uh, bringing in the dignitaries to hear hear Halsey's uh, response, and I I, I believe it was probably typical Halsey and and very assertive and and stating uh, uh, how, you know his thinking on on the Battle of Leyte Gulf. You don't get the nickname Bull because you're a big fan of nuance. <laughs> and, and in fact, one of our previous articles about uh, Leyte Gulf and Bull Halsey. Uh, I believe quoted Halsey is saying he wanted to put Morrison, a delicate part of Morrison's anatomy in a vice and tighten it. (laughs) I'm assuming he said that on more than one occasion. (laughs) Anybody within range of hearing. Right. Well, we've been talking with author David Sears, who presented a two-part series in Naval History magazine on Sam Elliot Morrison's writing of his multi-volume history of naval operations in World War II. David, thank you very much for being here with us today. This has been a great conversation. Really appreciate great. your time. Thank you, David. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you. Uh, keep listening to the Naval Institute podcast. We're excited to be able to report that thanks to a gift from the William M. Wood Foundation, we'll be bringing you a lot more naval history content on the podcast in the coming year. So continue to check in, keep those downloads on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and our website. For now, we're signing off from Beach Hall, and we look forward to talking with you again soon. Richard, thanks so much for being here with me today. My pleasure, and everybody out there, stay safe. Stay safe, everybody. Take care.